Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Ewan, I wonder, did you eat too much chocolate at the weekend? And is that why you're so excited about a set of numbers? <laughs> I'm always excited by polls. In fact, I had no Easter eggs. I didn't even think about Easter eggs, actually. Yeah, I didn't know any chocolate over the weekend. Because you were too busy looking at polls. There we go. Crunching now, the numbers. Crunching the numbers. So this is from um, Redfield and Wilson Strategies. A relatively new name in the uh, world of po- polling, but they've built a pretty solid reputation. Labour's lead over the Tories is now 14 points. That is a three-point drop since last month. Now, the significance, though, is that it is the narrowest lead that Labour's held over the Conservatives since Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. Labour is on 44, the Tories on 30, and the Lib Dems on 10. The Lib Dems also down two points. Uh, I should say the government's net competency rating stands at a not overwhelming minus 24%, but that is also up uh, four That's points quite a net. on the month. This is quite a net. <laughs> yeah, but it's not hard to improve on how bad sentiment was around the time of Liz Truss. We all remember that. And polls can change you in. Yes, absolutely. I think you're quite right, Liz. You should never take a poll in isolation. That's a very fair point. But I think working at Bloomberg, we look at a lot of charts. And if you if you look at this chart, so I appreciate on radio, this doesn't always work very well. But if you look at the charts of Labour's poll rating... There's, and if, <laughs> Listeners should be aware, Ewan is waving his hands in a chart-like fashion. <laughs> there's a lot of finger-waving. And you can see that the trend line of Labour's vote you share... stop doing the gestures. No, no one I have see. to show the trend line with my hands. <laughs> uh, that has actually been broken so it's been rising for about 18 months uh, and there's also a massive blip obviously for the for the trust uh, the trust disaster for the Tories but since March that trend line has been broken and Labour's vote share is now heading southwards so I think that is significant and we should watch this uh, over the coming months. This is we've had reports about when the next election might take place. The Telegraph and the Times saying that Tory Strash is planning to hold the election in autumn 2024, which I don't think is a huge surprise really for anyone. But that is the date. That is the sort of time frame they're looking at. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt splash the cash around that time or whether it's going to be too late actually for people to feel the benefit of an injection of money as it was for John Major, arguably. Yeah, I certainly think leaving the election later than October would be very risky because parties don't tend to want to leave it to the last minute. And of course, the last minute, I think, is early January. And I know we had a December election last time, but that was exceptional. Having them in the middle of winter is also suboptimal. So I would think that October is really the latest they want to aim for. You heard it here first. Okay, well, let's turn our attention now to Northern Ireland, where the US President Joe Biden will arrive later to mark 25 years since the Good Friday peace agreement was signed. The deal brought to an end 30 years of conflict in which over 3,500 people were killed. I've been speaking to one of those who negotiated that agreement. Liz O'Donnell was Ireland's junior foreign minister in 1998. She's been telling me about the final 
initial days of those talks and her view on the peace process now, 25 years later. We had it on good authority that Sinn Féin and the IRA were up for a negotiated settlement if it reached into the causes of the conflict. Uh, and similarly, on the loyalist side, we had we had that understanding that they were up for a settlement. And there was a huge appetite for peace in Northern Ireland amongst the people north and south. Uh, so that gave us strength to continue. But it was a very, very fractious uh, rounds of negotiations, a lot of distrust amongst the parties. And we had to really uh, cajole the parties and keep them in the talks and not be blown off course by any atrocities or, or things happening outside of the talks. I wonder, was there a moment in your recollection that you felt that towards the end there was a a shifting point where you thought, we're going to do this, we're going to get a deal? It wasn't really till quite late in the process, coming close to Easter. George Mitchell had said he was going home at Easter uh, and that gave us a sort of a deadline which sort of concentrated minds because we knew we couldn't do it without George Mitchell Mm -hmm. helping us um, to reach a solution. So it was only when all of these things, all of these strands came together, we realized that the breadth of scale of change that was envisaged by the agreement, uh, you know, basically it was a a reimagining of how Northern Ireland was to be governed, a new justice system, a new police system, the decommissioning of weapons, an end to the conflict, the release of prisoners, um, human rights. I mean, there was so much involved. And it was quite overwhelming. And I think many people, including the parties, were overwhelmed when it came to the actual conclusion of the negotiations. And we had to make a call on it. There was a lot to be finished. But I think in the end, everyone was ready to jump and to embrace uh, a new beginning and a new opportunity for peace on the island. There was a lot of talk subsequently of the idea of a peace dividend for Northern Ireland. I'm wondering, was the peace dividend in an economic term something that ever came up in those conversations? Oh, yes, indeed. The economy was a very important part and it was one of the great promises of the Good Friday Agreement that there would be an economic dividend, that if we had stability and peace in Northern Ireland, inward investment would come. And unfortunately, since the Good Friday Agreement over the 25 years, because there still has been political instability and the institutions of governance in Northern Ireland have only sat fitfully, I think the great promise of the economic dividend has not yet been achieved, but I do believe there is, as we come to the final element of post-Brexit arrangements for trade, that economic dividend is there for the taking. Northern Ireland could be in a unique position of having access to the single market and to the UK market. I think now it's time, as we reach this final part, hopefully, of getting the institutions back up and running with the DUP, that people grasp that opportunity, that we get back to that strategic leadership that we had 25 years ago, and that people move on from fixed positions and embrace that opportunity of of great prosperity and peace going forward. You've just returned from the United States and among the people that you meant there was the new economic envoy from the US government to Northern Ireland, Joe Kennedy. Was there any sense that perhaps there was investment ready for Northern Ireland should the institutions be restored? Yes, we have been assured. I met um, Joseph Kennedy when in Washington for St. Patrick's Day and all the events surrounding that. And there is no doubt but that 
the business community and uh, the American embassy and Secretary Hillary Clinton was there and Joe Biden. I mean, there's great promise and optimism there that there will be an economic dividend and that the opportunity is there to be grasped. If we can get the institutions up and running, if we can have a power sharing executive in Northern Ireland with North South institutions uh, working in cooperation uh, with the executive in Northern Ireland and in the Republic and East West relationships really repaired post Brexit, I think there is a huge opportunity for peace and prosperity and enduring peace and prosperity in Northern Ireland. Um, and I do believe that if there is political stability, I think that's there and waiting for Northern Ireland. Uh, if if the parties can agree to work together for the next 20 years and really build up the great promise and realise the great promise of the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement and its institutions have had a lot of ups and downs over the past 25 years. I wonder, are you optimistic about the future of Northern Ireland? I am, uh, but I've always been in that optimistic camp. I think you have to have hope and you have to inspire hope in others. 25 years after the agreement, I think now is the time to start looking forward for the next 25 years and to hand over to the next generation of young people where, you know, don't remember the conflict, don't remember the trauma of of a 30 year conflict and picking up bodies and people being murdered uh, just for their religion. I am optimistic that the the next generation will follow on, but it's up to the politicians now who are now elected in Northern Ireland to embrace the future. There has been a transformative change in Northern Ireland. We can never return to the bad old days. We need a diverse Northern Ireland. We need an inclusive Northern Ireland. uh, And we have a comprehensive settlement within our grasp, I believe. Well, that was former Irish Government Minister Liz O'Donnell, one of the negotiators of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, let's speak now to Matthew O'Toole of the Northern Ireland's SDLP. He's the leader of the opposition in the Stormont Assembly. Matthew, good to have you with us on the programme. We were hearing there the view of Liz O'Donnell, uh, of her view of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on and her optimism that things uh, can, some of the benefits still can be realised uh, from the agreement. Do you, in your eyes, does the agreement still work for Northern Ireland today? It, I mean, it certainly has worked in helping to uh, create peace and ensure a, a broad-based peace uh, and a significant measure of political stability for the last 25 years, even in Northern Ireland and on the island of Ireland. And that has you know, actually transformed, I think, the society. It's made it a much better place to live in. And, and, and a generation of, of young people have grown up without violence as an everyday occurrence. But it hasn't been enough, uh, not yet anyway. Uh, what we've seen is increased uh, political stalemate dysfunction with the institutions and, and, and frankly not enough delivery in terms of improved public services and economic opportunities for our young people so the next 25 years have to be about realizing the opportunities um of the good friday agreement and um, it's not a perfect document it doesn't explain how to do absolutely everything it doesn't you know it, it does make government a bit more complicated here because we have a system that relies on uh, consensus building and that's part of the reason we don't have a a, a, a functioning government amendment because the DUP refused to let one form. And um, so it's a time to reflect and be grateful and to celebrate, I suppose, the, the huge achievement of 1988. But we shouldn't, you know, we can't let that blind us to the fact that this thing isn't working at the minute. And we need to, um, for the next 25 years and beyond, we need to do much better in terms of actually realising the potential uh, in terms of improving people's lives. Matthew, Bill Clinton was 
pretty important to the process 25 years ago. What do you think that the US president this time around can, can bring? And do you think there's, there's, there's any chance of him helping to, to heal some of the divisions which have arisen over the last couple of years? Well, first of all, President Biden is extremely committed to um, uh, Ireland generally. He, he is obviously he is of Irish ancestry, but but uh, like his predecessor, President Clinton, um, in particular, but others as well, um, from from both sides of the aisle, perhaps more Democrats than Republicans, but not certainly not exclusively Democrats, has been engaged in um, wanting something better for Northern Ireland, trying to stop the conflict, but then uh, uh, delivered broad based. Uh, government and and prosperity for people here, so that commitment for the most powerful person in the in the world is hugely welcome. There aren't too many places in the world that 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 can rely on that kind of engagement from the most powerful person in the world. So that's welcome for a start. I think it's wrong to expect that President Biden can kind of flick a switch uh, and make the DUP, who are the ones who are blocking things at the minute, uh, see sense as it were. But hopefully, what he can do is be part of communicating to to people that look, there is international support really high-level international support for making our new arrangements work, for delivering more investment for Northern Ireland and economic opportunity based on the fact that we're now at the crossroads of two markets because of the protocol. We have the unique dual market access into both the British market and the European market. That could be a bedrock of building stability into the future. So I think he can emphasize those things. I I think it's expecting a little bit too much of President Biden that he's going to flick a switch and make everything okay. Ultimately, uh, that's a decision that Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP need to make and they're overdue making it. But hopefully the pre- the visit by President Biden can illustrate uh, once again that there is international support for uh, us delivering on the promise of the Good Friday Agreement. But that ultimately requires what people showed in 1998, people like uh, John Hume and David Trimble, actual courage and vision in terms of taking a step forward uh, and doing the difficult thing, which is compromising. Uh, and that really now is uh, what the DUP should be doing. And um, so I hope President Biden shows that there's international support for that, uh, for courage being shown, but ultimately he himself can't, he can't do the, he can't do the, 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 the thing that the EUP need to do there, the ones who now have to show the mm. leadership um, so, and the courage. So Matthew, the the US president can't flick a switch. Hopefully he can try to move the dial in terms of the DUP returning to power sharing. But in terms of the tone of how all of uh, the, the Good Friday Agreement is being commemorated, do you think that it's being struck in the right way? Well, I, I think it's important that we don't look um, sort of overly celebratory uh, about the Good Friday Agreement because, you know, it can't be simply something for, you know, um, uh, governments and parties to polish their spurs over and kind of say, look, weren't we great? We delivered this thing 25 years ago, particularly when too many, particularly working class communities have not really felt the benefits in terms of improved opportunity. Um, I mean, I would argue that is in part due to the the fact that the bigger parties that have run our institutions for the last decade and a half or more, uh, the DUP and Sinn Féin have not been as effective or as committed to the actual spirit of uh, sharing power and cooperation. Um, But it's it's important that we don't kind of make it simply about a a kind of uh, misty-eyed celebration when there are too many areas where as I say, there hasn't been enough delivery, especially for working class communities, especially for young people who still immigrate in large numbers, and also in terms of breaking down uh, the divisions in uh, in Northern Ireland. So no, I, don't, I think it is important to strike that. Having said that, it's also important that we do mark this extraordinary moment of hope, because hope is so precious in life and in politics. It's very rare that there's a moment of 
a ray of real hope and positivity and light. And that's what 1988 was. So we do have to remember it and try and recapture some of that. Um, the, but the future and the present can't be exactly like the past. It's the same in life, obviously. Nostalgia doesn't recreate um, uh, the moment. Um, you have to create something. You have to build a new moment in the future. Uh, the, the moment, what we'd like to create in my party is... Uh, Northern Ireland being back in the EU with the rest of the island of Ireland and I think the tools in the Good Friday Agreement help us do that in a way that's reconciled but others will have a different vision of Northern Ireland back inside uh, still in the UK uh, and they also I would you know many of them people who want to build that vision will want to use the, the tools in the Good Friday Agreement to help them achieve it it's a really unique agreement that we do need to celebrate but we can't do it in a way that is blind to the fact that you know there's too, there's been too much lack of delivery and too much failure uh, of people, particularly in working class communities here. So it is important to strike that balance. OK, Matthew O'Toole from the SDLP, leader of the opposition in the Stormont Assembly. Thank you very much for joining us. So President Biden will land in Belfast this evening to be greeted by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Well, our political reporter, Ellen Milligan, has just landed in Belfast herself. Now, Ellen, thanks for joining us on the show. Now, what will Rishi Sunak be hoping to achieve from his meeting with the US President? Hi, yes, there's a few things on the agenda over the next couple of days. Um, tomorrow being the big day and um, packed full of meetings. Um, obviously, I think the pair will discuss the Good Friday Agreement, mark the occasion. Um, they'll discuss the last 25 years, how Northern Ireland um, has progressed through peacetime, but also what's still holding um, Northern Ireland back. Um, we've spoken a lot about power sharing, for example, that's been suspended um, actually for about 40% of its of its lifetime. But actually, at the moment, it has been suspended for over a year. Um, that's one of the key pillars of the Good Friday Agreement, that nationalists and unionists neither have absolute power in the devolved government there. But it also means that it's been, it often gets used as a political football and both um, main parties on both sides have um, used that to, to suspend um, the government from fully functioning. Um, so that's hanging over um, today and tomorrow. And I think that will be discussed. Um, a couple of other things, the Windsor framework that Richie Sunak signed in November, um, a new Brexit deal for Northern Ireland that really helped smooth relations between the UK and the US and between the UK and the Irish government, which is also important to Joe Biden. So I think there'll be discussions on that. I'm sure Joe Biden will will congratulate Rishi Sunak for that. But they'll also be talking about implementing that agreement now um, so that trade flows more freely between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And then obviously, as Alex Wickham and I reported last week, um, the British officials would like to privately lobby their US counterparts to at least reopen a discussion about a free trade agreement. There's not even talks happening about that at the moment. So just reopening that dialogue is quite important to the UK. Well, how much of a reset then will that be in terms of relations? Because the idea of getting back towards talking about a UK-US trade deal, as you say, seems very far away at this stage. What concrete steps could we see in a best case scenario from this trip? Well, I think relations have already moved forward, right, with the Windsor framework. And as I said, this renewed relationship between the UK and the US, the UK and the EU and Ireland, um, that's something that Joe Biden has encouraged. He gave very warm words in a statement after that Windsor framework framework was signed as well. Um, Now, Joe Biden has been reluctant to pursue free trade agreements with with a lot of countries, including the U- the UK. Those were put on ice when when he um, when he took office. Um, so it, 
it's quite a tall ask to um, get them to reopen discussions, but the UK has drawn a roadmap um, whereby there can be incremental steps made to improve trading relations between the UK and the US, mm. working towards discussions about a free trade agreement. That's the kind of language where we might see um, today and tomorrow. Okay, Ellen Milligan in Belfast, thank you so much. We'll hear more from you as you report on that trip by Joe Biden to Belfast. Now, most of us may be back at work after the Easter holiday, but many doctors are not as a strike gets underway. Tens of thousands of junior doctors across England are on strike over the next four days. The NHS National Medical Director says this next round of strikes will see unparalleled levels of disruption. Well, our strikes reporter, Eamon Farhat, in the studio uh, with us. Eamon, what is the impact of this strike on the health service? Yeah, this strike here now, a four-day strike that's happening this week, is going to have quite a big impact. It's been estimated that about 175,000 hospital appointments were cancelled last time they went on strike, when it was only three days, and this time maybe double that. 350,000 hospital appointments could be cancelled. You know, people who have any kind of you know planned elective stuff going on could be cancelled. Obviously, emergency stuff should still go ahead, but staffing is very thin in hospitals across the UK. And obviously, they're striking over pay, so it's a simple question, but are UK doctors actually underpaid? No, it's a definitely a good question. You know, when you can compare it to European counterparts, you know, the UK kind of comes out kind of average, you know, places like France, doctors would be still be paid less, places like Germany a little bit more. I think what's really important here is that um, junior doctors are one to on strike this week. Um, they're only receiving a 2% pay rise this year. And across Europe, you know, junior doctors and doctors overall are receiving much higher pay rises. So I think that's definitely an important point. Um, but yeah, UK doctors definitely aren't the, you know, the worst paid across Europe. Many doctors actually from Europe come to the UK um, to try and work and all that. So it's definitely a mixed picture. So something of a mixed picture here, because junior doctors asking for a 35% pay rise. They say they've been, uh, f- uh, they've they've had below inflation uh, pay increases now for uh, 15 years. So is there anything that the government could have done to? Uh, prevent these strikes or was it sort of coming anyway? I mean the government could definitely have known that these strikes would have been coming you know for a long time junior doctors have been very angry about pay Uh, specifically this year they're only receiving a 2% pay rise which sounds very low but that's because it's part of this multi-year three-year pay deal they signed a few years ago Um, more widely across the NHS pay is discussed every single year which is why there was more of a 4-5% pay rise um, for nurses and other doctors but junior doctors it's quite specific because they they have this multi-year deal so they're only getting 2%. So workers in the private sector have received wage increases in line with or in some cases even above inflation. Those in the public sector we know in general are getting much lower pay rises. What's the government's argument for holding out? I think you know there's always been this argument about um, inflation, you know, having to control inflation. Um, that being said, obviously across the NHS now there is a payoff on the table for nurses and ambulance drivers, which supposedly will not um, fuel inflation. Um, and also, you know, the government has definitely been careful to try to you know use the fact that you know doctors are viewed as quite well-paid individuals, train drivers as well, for example. They've been trying to you know not really give pay rises to the people who are viewed by the general public as already having quite nice salaries. You know, why would you pay a train driver who's being paid 60k more um, just because of inflation, um, whilst nurses, of course, who are on the front line, they may be more deserving of pay rises. That's kind of maybe what the government strategy could have been up to now. And is it just doctors that we should be worried about? I know they're life and death, but are there other public sector workers that are potentially going to strike as well? I mean, yeah, as I said, um, we have the you know, doctors is definitely life and death. Um, when we have to understand when junior doctors go on strike, that really means that 
across the NHS. You know, even you know there are some dental areas which will be affected. You know, many different areas uh, of the NHS will be thin on the ground with staffing. And then across, you know, further afield, we obviously have the public services. We have the PCS, which are the civil servants who have a major day of action coming up at the end of April. Um, you know, we could have airport disruptions and all that. They haven't been as disruptive. I think you know the health strikes have really been probably the most disruptive um, so far um, in the public service. But well, you know, we could be seeing also more rail strikes. You know, that's something that's always on the table. You know, the deals haven't fully gone through. I think the thing is, once you know these offers and deals go through fully, until they go through fully, sorry, there's always um, likelihood for more disruption. And there's the teachers' strike, which is a relatively new one, isn't it? Yeah, so the teachers, you know, they had an offer like everyone else. They rejected that offer now. I think all four of the unions have rejected the offer. Um, some of the unions are actually... So only one of the unions actually has a strike mandate. Um, the other ones are balloting to kind of maybe have a strike mandate. So those strikes could spread further. But yeah, the teachers, you know, it's, it's about 300,000 teachers who go on strike each time. This happens nationally. Um, that's obviously a huge disruption to children's schooling. We're coming up to exam season uh, for GCSEs and A-levels. So there is definitely, you know a lot of leverage these teachers are trying to hold over the government and yet you know they received an offer they rejected it it seemed like it was a final offer so we don't really know where to go from here plenty to follow on all of these strike fronts anyway thanks very much for the update our strike supporter Eamon Farhat well last week we covered reports of the CBI's investigation into workplace misconduct this morning the UK's biggest business lobby has named its former chief economist Rain Newton-Smith as its new director general Tony Danker is dismissed with immediate effect the CBI board says that Danker's conduct fell short of that expected of a director general but he's not the subject of any of the more recent allegations in the wider investigation. Interesting that they should have an economist leading the CBI. Certainly is. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Baruchel Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.